0: Hello, everyone. I'm AJ Woodhams, host of the War Books podcast, where I interview today's best authors writing about war-related topics. Uh, Today, super excited to have Jeffrey Stern uh, on the show talking about his new book, uh, The Mercenary, A Story of Brotherhood and Terror in the Afghanistan War. Uh, Jeff uh, is an award-winning journalist and author. He's written three books, one of which was turned into a major motion picture by Clint Eastwood, that's really cool. His work has appeared in the New York Times Magazine, Vanity Fair, Atlantic, and others. Jeff, how you doing today?
1: good, thanks, it's great to be here.
0: Yeah, well thanks so much for coming on the show. Uh, I really enjoyed your book. I know you say it's not a novel in the, uh, the very beginning, but I really found myself reading it as if it was a novel. I, I really stylistically. I loved it. I thought you did a really nice job with this story. And you know, it's like one of those books where I felt like the pages turned themselves. Uh, so really nice work. Thank you. I, that means a lot.
1: That's like everything I want to hear. <laughs> so oh, good. All right. <laughs> Perfect. Well, we let me,
0: what's that? Yeah. So thanks everyone. That's the interview. <laughs> so let me just like first start on something that so you were a, a war correspondent and you write briefly about why, but you don't really dwell on it, but I kind of want to dwell on it here uh, a little bit. So why, what made you want to go to Afghanistan to be a war reporter? What did your family think when you said, hey, I'm going to Afghanistan? Tell us, tell us a little bit about how you got into that.
1: So I, I mean, one of the things that I, that I thought might be, one of the things I was interested in was writing. And I think that sort of in, in, when I was in college, that was sort of a passion that, that grew a little bit. I didn't, I, I was kind of late to it in some ways. I didn't write for my college paper. I, I had had the chance to write a few longer form articles for uh, local kind of hippie independent uh, paper, free paper, uh, my alumni magazine, an article or two. So I had just enough experience to be like, you know, I kind of like this and I probably thought of myself as, you know, the next great American novelist or something, but, but knew, didn't, didn't want to be kind of like the starving artist type. wanted to be a little bit more practical. So that I think was the bridge from writing to journalism. And then because I just didn't have, I didn't have that many connections. I didn't have really a portfolio, you know, it was hard. It was hard from a It was hard for me to get a job in journalism. And it was hard to prove to editors that they should consider me as a freelancer. And so somewhere along the line, the idea, and it kind of started as a joke that turned into maybe an idea that turned into, well, maybe I should actually seriously consider this, was this idea of going someplace where even if no one knew who I was, the place would kind of pitch itself in some way.
0: Were you afraid of of the danger that you're going to be putting yourself in?
1: I think it was... I think it was such a, I don't think it was real until it was real. You know, I don't, I think for so much of the planning, it was, there's no way this is actually going to happen. You know, oh, I forgot to get this kind of visa. Of course, like, so now I'm not going to go. You know, it wasn't until I kind of landed that it occurred to me that this might actually happen. And there were a million times along the way that it was like, yeah, see, I screwed this up. So I'm not actually going to go or, you know, it was always like this, this kind of thing happens in the movies, doesn't happen in real life. So eventually I'm going to have the reality check and it's not going to happen. So I think that prevented me from being, from being scared, not because I was, you know, brave and willing to face the consequences, but because I didn't think I actually would. It's just like, you know, it's like, well, I guess like
0: everything's kind of worked out in this. So I guess I'll, I'll jump in and do this.
1: That, or a little bit also of the opposite, that not, this is not all going to continue to work out. So (laughs) I'm not actually going to end up in Afghanistan. You know, I'm going to, what did your
0: family, what did your family say when you told them?
1: Well, I think I think partially because it had started as this kind of a joke. So I'd had this internship and one of my bosses had a friend who was uh the Islamabad bureau chief or the Kabul bureau chief or I think the Washington Post and had written and said, Hey, you know, hey, hey buddy, hey Brian. I'm coming home, you know, I'm giving up this post. And so my boss, Brian, you know, was like, Oh, interesting. My uh my friend is coming home from from running the bureau, the Washington Post bureau and." Cobblers you know, or, or wherever it was, and it, and I said, "Oh, I'll take over." And it was sort of a joke because everyone knew I was kind of like the least qualified intern they'd even ever had. So it was like, "Ha ha ha!" You know, Jeff will take over. And then I think that sort of lodged in my head, like, "What a funny joke." Well, now wait a minute, you know. And so nice. and I and I think I talked about it that way. So I talked about it as kind of a joke. Then this sort of fantasy. Then so I sort of unintentionally kind of like weaned people into the idea. So I think for them too, it was a little bit of a, this is not actually going to happen until I was taking off. Well,
0: your book, so it's not really a, it's not a memoir, but it's, you know, your life is, you know, front and center in it. And you say, like I mentioned, it's, it's not a novel. How would you classify your book actually?
1: You know, I'd love to classify it as a novel, actually. I mean, that's why I was... (laughs) I was so, so affirming that you said that because I, I, you know, I, I work really hard to try to make things, you know, make it read like a novel. And I don't know that necessarily all the time I take being this word instead of this word, this develop this person, like a character. I don't know that necessarily always shows up on the page. So first of all, when you, when you reflect that, it's like, maybe some of that time was worth it. Nice, And also I find just in, in publishing, there's sort of a, a tendency to say okay this is nonfiction, and therefore this is how that here's the audience we should sort of push it to um and you know i am not an expert in afghanistan i would never claim to be nor would i you know want to be but that's kind of that's kind of the conventional path to, 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 to presenting a book like this you know yeah. oh, know well, jeff's an expert in afghanistan talk about that and really what's more important to me is to sort of tell the story and some of the other more kind of human perhaps a little bit less practical messages. So I would love to cons- I've thought of what to call a genre. I mean nonfiction novel. Is that yeah. is that more on, you, you know? know
0: no, I've read actually there's a uh nonfiction novel by Ken Follett called I think On the Wings of Eagles. And it's about Iran. I I read this book a long time ago. Um so I really forget anything that was in it. But I've, you know, I've read I've read books like that before. So uh not that you want to, you know, Maybe that's not your style, but well, but this, the, the events in this, this book are with an asterisk kind of, which you point out in the introduction, they're true though, right? This, 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 these aren't
1: things that, that you made up. I didn't make anything up, uh, at least not on purpose. I, you know, hired a fact checker. I couldn't really afford to put out, point out all the things that I didn't really have sourced well enough. I mean, you know, they're, it's, it's impossible to avoid, you know, hundred percent avoid mistakes, but i tried as hard as I could to avoid them. And I suppose the exception is just that I did want to lean into misperceptions. That was a huge part of it, largely mine. So you know, that's why you see things happen, you know, in part one of the book that are true to how I was experiencing things. But, but, you know, you realize later when you see things from other people's perspectives that in the moment I was, uh, that I, I was, I was confused or I did, I was a little naive or I, I misread the situation that I was in.
0: Yeah, and I want to come back to that because I thought that was a very interesting. The events that you describe versus the events that your friend Aymal describes, uh, I thought that was that was very interesting. Just for the audience, maybe we can just kind of step back and give some context and give give an overview of your book. So it's it says on the the cover a story of brotherhood and terror in the Afghanistan war, uh, and it's really it's the story of you. And um, your friend Aimal and your life story, his life story, and how those stories uh, interweave and the events that take place. Is that an accurate way to? Perfect. I love that. (laughs) Thank you. Oh, great. Well, you know, talk a little bit then about let's start with, you know, so you've got the story of of Aimal in your book. Talk a little bit first about your friend Aimal, his background. Uh, his personality he seems like a really interesting guy. Yeah, talk
1: a little bit about him. So, you know, when I when I first met him, he was a taxi driver, and he was really funny and really charming. And we and I just sort of felt like we bonded. And I didn't speak any Farsi. I he didn't. He's, he was very confident in his English, but was very bad at it. But so there was lots of laughs. You know, there was a lot of there was a lot of just sort of connecting on a, you know, on just sort of a human level. I think looking back, part of that is because we were similar in a in a lot of of course, very different in a lot of ways, but similar in some ways, one of which was that we were both really ambitious and we were both really trying to make a name for ourselves, and we were doing it kind of in in a similar in in a similar atmosphere. you know, I was in an entirely new country. And this was his country but it also kind of wasn't i mean this was his country that looked a lot different from from how it had when he was a little bit younger because all of a sudden there was you know so much money and and so so much international presence so you know he was sort of his streets but also a little bit different and also there was this part of his city that grew up that he didn't really have access to which is where all the kind of foreigners would spend time and you know the bars and the bases and and all this stuff so we became we became friendly he started to really look out for me we our sort of lives continued to to intersect we were about the same age um and then at some point he kind of shifted from this you know scrappy funny hard luck always kind of in need kid to pretty wealthy and then really wealthy uh, and of course at the time i was very confused and couldn't quite figure out what was going on and it was only years later that I, that I, that he sort of clued me in to to what had been going on under my nose. Yeah. And so like his, his backstory is he grew up,
0: you know, very, I would say very, very poor in Afghanistan. You know, he was not one of the wealthy, right. wealthier or from a right. wealthier family in Afghanistan. And, and his background was, uh, you know, he, he becomes a businessman um he starts like selling selling CDs, I think, or something with something to do with music. And he just like kinda like slowly works his way up. And by the time you meet him, he he owns his own he drives for a taxi
1: company or he owns his own company? He drives for a taxi company. He hadn't started his that and that to him at the time felt like, you know, as high as he could ever get because he got to spend all this time with foreigners who he had kind of come to idolize because Earlier during the Taliban years and the Civil War years, when he was, you know, literally starving, one of the only ways that he had sort of relief was his brother had kind of stolen a satellite dish and he would he would watch, you know, international but largely American television. So he sort of came to idolize foreigners, white people, the way he described it. He wanted to be around white people and he wanted to be a white person. He wanted to. So he got it when he got a job driving for this taxi company, you know, even though he was sort of getting paid not that much for a while it was, I have arrived, you know, I get to spend time with foreign people. And and so, his own company.
0: Yeah. And all the while, like, you know, growing up, you you, you talk a little bit about how he's like, you know, the Afghanistan war starts. And before that, before 2001, he's watching on like his satellite dish, he's watching other countries and it's kind of his escape. And like the events going on in America or in Europe, And then September 11th obviously happens and all of a sudden his country is on TV and he's watching his own people. Uh, I thought that was, that was really striking. Let's talk a little bit about kind of the Afghanistan war and how that, that obviously that's the backdrop to this story. So you, you get to Afghanistan in the late 2000s, I think it's 2007. That's right. What was going on uh, in
1: the the war at that time? What was going on in Afghanistan? So I think if we look back now, that looks kind of like like the beginning of, of really the insurgency kicking off into another kind of a higher gear. Of course, there was this period in the early 2000s where the Taliban had basically said, okay, we lose, we're out. And then they sort of came back. At the time, it didn't necessarily feel that way. It felt, I mean, to me, landing there... And, you know, I was probably blinkered a little bit just by the fact that I was having this crazy adventure that, again, I never thought would actually happen. Um, And I was in this strange but also like very beautiful place. So it didn't necessarily feel like I was parachuting into this very kinetic war zone at all. I mean, it felt like I was parachuting into a kind of beautiful, a little bit dusty developing country with a lot of energy. But it was not. And this probably should have been a lesson like it wasn't that hard to find i mean there was there was some kind of violence beginning to happen you know even in this major cities you know several times a week so it was sort of these two worlds happening at once it was like you know studying abroad in an interesting new safe country with friendly people but then also this sort of undercurrent of really intense urban insurgency happening and so like
0: you're a young reporter you know, what are some of the things that you're feeling like, what are the thoughts you're having? You know, how is, how is this all registering to you as a, a young or fresh out of college too? I don't, I don't think we mentioned that. This is like your first reporting. I think your first reporting job out of college and basically you're a free, you were freelance, like you were working at a university and yeah. just going around trying to, to get stories. What were your
1: feelings at the time? I think for me, I was so, um, in a, I mean, again, I think I was able to keep this sort of facade of like, this isn't quite real. Um, and this is something that I, that kind of came home later that I dealt with much later, but I, and I wasn't conscious of this at the time, but I think I had a sort of clinical mindset, you know, I am here to observe and, and maybe even, you know, a little more, almost shamefully, like I'm here to build a career for myself. Um, so thing, things would happen and, you know, I'd be conscious of sort of the tragedy and the human cost. But I w- would also be able to to sort of see things in a, you know, I'm a journalist. How is this going to make for a good story? You know, h- who am I going to, how am I going to get a really powerful detail that an editor back home might want to, you know, m- might be interested in. Yeah, it becomes a um, little less human at, at, it, yeah, it at that
0: point. Um, I remember Anderson Cooper talked once about how uh, he was, reporting from a war zone and he was a little bit younger and he just found himself just like snapping photos of of dead bodies or something and not even realizing this is this is a human being this is a life yeah Um, so you know maybe like a similar uh similar feeling
1: yeah Yeah, it is it's like yes it's a human being but it doesn't kind of register emotionally as much and I, i have a few explanations for that i don't know which any which of them are true if any but one is you know, I know, I know doctors who can go into an emergency room and take care of people who are, you know, bleeding out, but who, if they see someone roll their ankle on the sidewalk or puking, you know, so I think there's something of like being in situ, you know, this is my job, this is that you're able to kind of be a little bit more clinical. I also think, and, and this is like, this is uncomfortable to admit, but I think that there might be an aspect of these are human beings, but they don't look exactly like me. And therefore maybe this is like I don't connect to it as much. Um, That you know, that would be blown up for me way later when when you know Kabul collapsed, and it was like all these people that I felt were my family were in trouble. But um, but I think for a while I was able to sort of I was able to sort of keep that distance. And I think another part of it may just be because as close as I came to feel to people and to this place, I always knew I had another home. And even when at times Afghanistan felt like a home, I still had a you know I still had another home, so I could leave. Yeah, it didn't quite register to me that people around me couldn't really.
0: And so, as your kind of your your fledgling reporting career, as that kind of gets off the ground, what are some of the, I guess, what are some of the things that that happen on that first kind of stretch when you're in Afghanistan as a reporter?
1: Yeah. So first of all, you you alluded to this, but I was not able to make enough money, you know, doing a couple of articles, uh, doing an article a week or something for, you know, esquire.com slap backslash part of the website. No one ever goes to, to actually survive there. So I ended up getting this job at the American university of Afghanistan. It was a um, low level job, basically kind of a glorified secretary, but it gave me housing um, a little bit of money and, and kind of a base of operations. But so I, I, what would happen is I'd, you know, I'd have a nine to five or sometimes longer than that. And then if something happened, I'd sort of ask my boss, like, I am hearing there's a, you know, a bomb went off in this part of the city. Can I go? Um, And usually it would be because Amol had called me to tell me that. And usually I'd be trying to find a way to get Amol to come get me rather than, you know, one of the other drivers for that. Taxi company.
0: I guess I've been saying I'm all. I was reading it, I'm all but am like email, you say. Well no, you're uh, saying it being, as, as
1: close as Amol. Okay. I say, well, it,
0: yeah, I mean and that's I live in the region. Middle East for a very short period of time, so some of some of the
1: pronunciations I can get uh okay. Anyway, Sometimes um as much as it helps because you know what's it's <laughs> correct, correct in one part, one country, and it's slightly different in another country. Sure, sure, sure. So we, you know, we saw we covered some bombings, some shootings, their mine clearing operations, uh, you know, and, and and I was sort of getting drawn into the kind of development efforts because I had this job at the American University of Afghanistan, which was partially a grantee of USAID, USAID. So, you know, of course, I wasn't by any stretch, you know, a development expert or or anything like that. But I had it. But I had kind of a window into um, what was happening in terms of like the development efforts and the education efforts, um, you know for for better or worse? Um so those two things were kind of happening at the same time. And it's true, you know I, I I went I've gone back and forth to the country over the years, but that first stint was six or seven months straight, which at that age and at that time felt you know that felt like being there, especially because other journalists, with some exceptions, but other journalists would usually come in for you know a few days or a few weeks and leave. So I was sort of like, man, i I get it. I live here, you know, after being there for six months.
0: And so you um you eventually return uh, to to America. How are you feeling then when you return?
1: I felt I think I felt a mix of things. I felt like I'd had this kind of really meaningful experience. I had a you know, I had the beginnings of a portfolio. Um I still couldn't really get a job, you know. So what ended up happening is I spent two or three months being like, I'm a sort of accomplished war correspondent, because I'd had four articles published in blog posts, basically. Still kind of couldn't get a job. And the only place that would have me really was back in Afghanistan. I got another kind of low-level job at the American University and went back and did it all again for another 6 months or 7 months.
0: And how did things so on your second time around how how were things different?
1: The things were different in that the 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 day job I had was a little bit more directed. I I went back to start working on this um at a women's education program. So there had been this there had been this project run out of Thunderbird School of Global Management in Arizona where they were bringing about 10 or 15 aspiring Afghan, aspiring businesswomen over to Arizona to, to kind of combine them with mentors and run them through a modified version of this business school curriculum and then send them back. Um, there was some connection between that school and the American University of Afghanistan. And they decided it'd be great if we could do a version of this in Afghanistan. It would sort of save money. We could reach more people. Everyone at the university was really busy with really important jobs, except for me so not not by any <laughs> virtue of my qualifications, but sort of by the opposite, this was sort of put in my lap as like figure out how to do this. So I spent a lot of time trying to figure out how to build this you know Afghan women business training program in Kabul, which I again was like totally unqualified to do, but ended up being kind of an interesting you know rhyme with with the with this my sort of night job as a journalist because you know i would I would go on these tours of local businesses and meet women doing interesting things. And then I would see sort of the other side of the, you know, of the country when I was at some, you know, the site of some bombing or something. And so all the while,
0: when you're the first and second, the first time and this time, your friendship with i all is, is growing, right? Talk about yeah. that friendship and, and how that's evolving. Because he's not just yeah. your
1: driver anymore. You guys are your friends. Yeah. You know, he starts as my driver. I think pretty quickly, I was like, I want this person to be my friend and I'm going to make him be my friend, even if he doesn't want to to be. He was also just my entire bureau. I mean, again, I had no access to official people. I had no resources behind me. So he became my translator, my driver, my security. Um, Really, he was, he was my sort of network of sources because he would kind of hear when things would happen in a way that I at the time didn't quite understand uh, how he was able to do that. And then, and then when we were actually kind of doing stories, he, he would sort of facilitate, he kind of got a sense of what information I was looking for and, and was almost in some ways kind of a co-writer. So he was, you know, this entire bureau in one person and he was, you know, and he was becoming, I thought, you know, a, a really genuine close friend, despite the fact that we'd come from, you know, different worlds.
0: Yeah. And you're, he invited you to dinner with his family. Yeah, like, You know, it's, it, it's not, it's really not just a business relationship. You guys are, you seem to be really actual good friends. Yeah. Well, I'm not, not asking for, for spoilers, um, because I do like that. I do like how things are are laid out, but you know, maybe if you could just talk about some of the events that you would like to share with you and, in I'm all and, um, what those events were and, and why they're important to the story. So, like the two of
1: the two of the scenes that as well do I'll, I'll describe two of the scenes that are that are that we see twice, and one of them is when he is kind of courting a young woman and wants to take her on a picnic um, to this place called the Salang Pass, which is a couple hours from Kabul and it's just this beautiful, kind of waterfally, white water, mountainous region that's really close to the city it feels totally different because Kabul, uh, especially in the summer, it gets really hot. It's dusty. It's, you know, it can be, it's kind of can get dirty. It's like any other kind of downtown city. And then a few hours away, you've got this beautiful lush, you know, you feel like you're in the Lord of the Rings or something. So he, he wanted to sort of take her out from the dusty city of Kabul and show her this good time. He invited me, and my understanding was that I was sort of the character witness because this this woman was Afghan. She was born in Afghanistan, but she'd grown up. She left very young and grown up in in Europe, so she was. You know, he felt he was punching above his weight, and he needed another foreigner to kind of be there to, to vouch for him. So we went. We went on this. You know, on this picnic, and it and it kind of ended in disaster because we we basically got arrested for indecency, and you know, hijinks ensued. And as I narrate it. I was able to use my you know my station as an american to kind of get us out of trouble. We see that same that same scene again from his perspective and we realize what actually happened which was in addition to everything that led up to getting arrested which I had also misunderstood. Once we did Everything I said was sort of making it worse, and Amal was actually kind of stage managing the situation to try to get me to be quiet. And then he was translating, intentionally mistranslating what I was saying. So I, so you know, while I had remembered this event as you know, wow, everyone's going to thank me. I, I was, I stood up for myself, and I, you know, in this foreign land, I, you know, I, I kind of presided over this moment and got us out of trouble it really was the opposite. I I'd, I'd made things worse and I'd made it harder for Amal and he sort of had ingeniously manipulated the situation to get us out safely.
0: Yeah, so. and this this scene too to give a little context to it. So this is obviously Afghanistan, a, a conservative country and the the indecency was it was it was just two men and a woman and the woman wasn't related to the two men, correct? Right. Yeah. Yeah. So what First, let me, let me ask you, because uh, we touched on this earlier, but I'll ask you now about these scenes that are narrated from your perspective and then narrated from I'm all's perspective. What are some of the, the, the differences in how you both perceive yourself?
1: Well, I think a lot of the differences are, I think a lot of the differences, if not almost all of them, are, are, are my own misperceptions. Because in addition, you know, of course, perception is subjective, but I didn't speak the language, you know, he did, there was a lot going on in his life that I, of course, didn't know that he did. So there are, there are moments where I'm just sort of bringing a level of like hubris and kind of projecting onto what's around me as, as if I know and it's only once we see things from the perspective of someone who is from this country and lives here and, it's, and his sort, entire kind of career is based on looking really closely at sort of society that we see what is what, what I would now confidently say is the truth, you know, between the sure. two versions. Part of it is my perspective and his perspective, but part of it is, is the perspective of a young ambitious person who, who lacks humility and the perspective and, and truth and almost truth right
0: now and I, what I, I was actually really struck by was uh, when we get I'm all narrated from your perspective he's this like very personable very confident you know this guy that everybody likes uh, when we get narrated from his perspective you really get a lot of insecurity and or at least I felt like insecurity for example you know, he is—he's—he's he's always ruminating on how you know his father died at, at uh, when he was very young, and like he doesn't come from wealth, and you know Americans are kind of these exalted people, mm-hmm. and you know he's just this like Afghan who doesn't really matter. Talk yeah. a little bit about how. Because obviously you're not in his mind, but for the purposes of the book, you are in his mind. Talk yeah. about how that kind of—I don't want to say—character of I'm All developed. But what was that? How did you come on that process?
1: So I think I think it started because before there was ever a book, I was visiting him in Canada a few years ago, and and he brought up another uh, story that we'd done together, and he said something. You know, we were joking about it, but he said something that kind of. Made me realize that this actually really haunted him. This was really that he. This stuck with him, and th- I think that may have been the seed of, you know, it's important to try to tell this story f- from his perspective, and not just from his perspective, but sort of like the interiority, because it is really easy, and this is basically what I did to view this person as kind of oh, this nice guy who's kind of here to serve me, you know, and that and that I think a lot of our relationship, too much of our relationship was that. And I think from part one, that's sort of what you see, this confident, happy, lucky little guy, nothing can hurt him. Nothing, you know, he's, and that's partially, I think, comes from feeling, you know, thinking really highly of him. But I think it also partially comes from not thinking of him, you know, not thinking of him as a three-dimensional human being who is able to have, you know, doubts and insecurities. And, you know, I'm, I'm glad you brought that up because in a way I think that that's, it's kind of universal. I mean, you know, how many, how many people that you, that project as really confident do you later find out are struggling with deep, deep insecurities? I mean, it's everyone. Why should it be different for him? But from my perspective, here I was in this, you know, strange, exotic new land and everything that was there was kind of there for me to consume. And so I, I hope that that contrast between, you know, the the somewhat two-dimensional version of mall that I described from my perspective And this like very thoughtful, insecure, but also kind of brilliant person from his perspective. I hope that kind of I'm glad I'm glad that that popped for you, that that's validating.
0: Yeah, absolutely. And it's not just um, I mean, there are several scenes. There's a a scene that takes place in a morgue that I thought was also especially striking. So I, I did really enjoy those now talking about I'm all in this scene that you you were talking about where you guys are basically arrested. Now he's if I remember correctly the woman that you are with is this the woman that he he wants to marry?
1: At the time yeah it's, it's yes. not the one he ultimately does but yeah. Right
0: right. And now this this I found so this really so he ultimately is dissuaded from marrying her because he doesn't have enough money and he meets her dad and he's like, what kind of life are you going to provide my daughter? talk a little bit about not just that event, but because as you mentioned, he comes into a lot of money later on. Talk about how kind of this this cloud of not having much money, talk about that, how that hangs over I'm all and then how that influences some of, of his actions.
1: Yeah. So, like you pointed out, from a from a really early age, he was really conscious of how much he didn't have. Um, and in some ways, I mean, that may seem kind of obvious. That, you know, I, not everyone knows the entire history of Afghanistan, but with with even sort of the most basic knowledge, you know that you know it's not a wealthy country. It hasn't been a wealthy country for a while. But still, even by the standards of you know early '90s Afghanistan, where there was civil war, and then there was Taliban years, and the Taliban were among other things, they were just not very good at governing. So there was you know, there was famine, there was food shortage, and n- not for everyone, but for a lot of people. And because he had lost his father really young, his mother was uh, widowed with a bunch of kids to look after, and he was just very conscious, partially because of that, partially because of what he was seeing on the, on the satellite dish of how much he didn't have and how small he was, basically. He, you know, He felt inadequate there were a few early opportunities he had to provide for his family he he as a really young man there was a small ngo that did kind of vocational training and also gave kids like groceries for their families so he had that experience of of providing very very modestly but but that kind of that kind of stuck with him and then, and then every time there was some kind of even suggestion that rhymed with that kind of of inadequacy, it would kind of inflame. I mean, it would he he, he would he would kind of fly off the handle. And a really good example of that is the one you brought up, where he goes to meet with the uh, with the father of uh, Fatima, this woman that he's sort of courting, and and the father is basically saying. And I, you know my, my hope is you can kind of see things from both perspectives because the father is saying my daughter is educated she travels she has friends i don't want her to marry you know a conservative talib type guy but to aim all what's happening is he's saying you're poor you're not good enough for her where's your father where's your you know and he and it's almost like violent the feeling of yeah of course again i'm being made to feel you know small and inadequate and in because I don't have a family. I don't have money. I don't have, and it, and it inflames that sense of, you know, so screw you guys, I'm going to do it. I'm going to find a way and I'm going to be big enough that you're all going to be, you know, begging me for forgiveness.
0: Yeah. And so then talk about like that. Well, actually, before I ask you, we're going to come back to this in a second, but I was thinking about just as you were just talking, um, did you know uh, about his upbringing when you were when you were there and you were with him no so this is something you found out afterwards yeah okay so at the time like what did you what did you think about you know his life and his upbringing and his background like how did you feel as an american you know what were some of those did you feel did you already feel like i obviously come from a much wealthier place than
1: then I'm all- I think I was, I was conscious of being exalted, you know, to use your word, exalted as a foreigner, as an American and probably not as uncomfortable with that as I should have been. You know, I, I sort of enjoyed this feeling of being really special through no achievement of my own, just because, you know, I had white skin and was from America. You know, that was sort of enough for me to be special initially in his eyes. And, and, and it felt like in a lot of people's eyes and I just kind of took it. <laughs> You know, right. and I said, "Yes, you're welcome." You know, I'm I'm great because I was born in the right place. Did you feel? How did you feel when you found out that? Oh gosh, his background—like he comes from a very poor place. I wasn't shocked. I mean, I think I knew. I think I knew enough to know. I mean, I, I think I knew. Of course, I I didn't assume he came from great wealth. Um, I I was always impressed with his house, but I think that's just because it, you know his. Family, his mom and his brothers worked really hard at to keep this house that was in the center of, of Kabul. Uh, but and and I and then when, when he would have me over for these meals, they were always, you know, they there was so much food. And I was I sort of assumed that was not normal, but but it didn't it didn't bother me. And it didn't it, and I wasn't I wasn't so I wasn't sort of shocked When I found out the details of his, of his early childhood, it kind of tracked, but also I found myself really kind of like wanting to like reach out and hug that kid, you know, and be like, it'll, you know, you're, you're good. You're, you know, you'll be okay. This is not your fault. So talk about, talk about then this
0: journey. He, that I'm all begins after like, you know, he loves this woman and wants to marry her, but like, he's broke. Talk about his journey then from like, okay, like I'm tired of being broke to, uh, to wealth.
1: Yeah. So some of his other friends at this taxi company decide to start their own taxi company and they invite him to, to be a part of it. Um, and what he finds is he, they, they mistreat him too. They kind of look down on him too, but they also like take his ideas. And so at some point And he says, this is because I suggested it, which I don't remember, but at some point he's, I suggest, why don't you just start your own company? And for some reason that hadn't occurred to him. Um, I think, I think he, he didn't, you know, again, to your point, like I saw this sort of confident, you know, mouthy kid who like could do anything. He saw like, how could I, I'm just Amol, I'm just some poor Afghan. How could I ever start my own business? But the way he describes it when I was like, well, screw it. Why don't you start your own? That kind that kind of stayed with him, and eventually he kind of had a bit of a falling out with the second taxi company, decided to start his own company at that time, I was in America. He called me and asked for an in, an initial investment. I found a way to wire him seven hundred dollars and he and I thought that was that was a point I thought was interesting that you gave him seven hundred dollars to start his company. Yeah. I don't know why that. I mean, I know that that felt like a huge amount to me, but I also knew that that just in the grand scheme of starting a business that couldn't possibly be a lot. And then it turns out that's, you know, that does become a very minuscule amount. It turns out, but in the, in the interim, as I, as he began becoming successful in a way that I, you know, in my part, I can't quite figure out how, and he's like, you did this, you started this company. This is your company. Again, I was like, all right, (laughs) you know, I don't really see how 700 dollars can do it, but I'll take it. I'll take the credit. So I guess, yeah, I mean, without giving too much away, he started a taxi company. It became more than a taxi company. And he found a way to exploit the misunderstanding, you know, the gap between the international community and Afghans, um, and particularly when it came to weapons.
0: And it's, it's tied to the American just influx of cash,
1: or I mm-hmm. guess it's the,
0: the NATO Uh, -hmm. I'm I'm not sure what the right,
1: um, terminology, uh, you know, international security systems force, which I think is NATO plus a few, maybe it's NATO minus a few, but anyway, I say NATO too. But
0: there's just this massive kind of influx of cash that, um, that I'm all is, you know, that's, um, ultimately that's how he, he makes this wealth for himself. Uh, Much like a lot of other people, he finds ways to, to, to get a part of that talk about why you know what is this why is there so much money pouring in what are the types of things that people are doing with this money talk about kind of this this cash infusion
1: yeah like so one of the things i was hoping the book might do um is you know of course we hear about corruption in wartime contracting in Iraq Afghanistan elsewhere you know we hear stories all the time about you know how horrible it is how much money is lost and how much graft there is and inefficiency and you know, in a way he embodies that, like that's where he's making his hay. And so, and so part of my hope is like, yes, but like, let's, let's get to know someone. So we're rooting for that person and then find ourselves almost rooting for him to make more of this American taxpayer money. But yeah, a huge amount of money poured into the country to, you know, and, and this is not an expert analysis, but it always seemed to me like the, the, motivation behind it would alternate between, at least from from the American perspective, it would be we can't let Afghanistan become a safe haven for terrorists again. And then it would then that would feel kind of politically a little bit too self-serving. So then it would shift kind of towards, we're developing this country and democratic peace. And then that would feel a little bit too Pollyannic. and then it would shift back to But it was, you know, there was this massive influx, billions and billions and billions of dollars to secure and build uh, Afghanistan. And a lot of good things were accomplished, I think, and a lot was lost and wasted. And so like what, like, so when we're talking about like graft, you know,
0: obviously, you know, I'm all with, with the weapons uh, stuff, but like, what are the types of, you know, is there, I don't know, are, are people uh, are politicians pocketing the money? You know, how is this, how is this affecting the country as a whole?
1: Yeah. It's, it's like a, um, version of, you know, we talk about inequality, income inequality and almost everywhere, but in America, for example, and it's, it's like that there with slightly different driver and kind of a different scale. But, you know, if you're, if you're a Western country or if you're a neighboring country, if you're Iran or, or Pakistan or your country nearby, you know, it's important. Afghanistan is sort of a chessboard. It's sort of in this, you know, it's landlocked, but it's in the strategic place. So a lot of countries find various ways of, of buying influence. You know, you want to make sure that your country is the, the person who's in power, the people who are in power, have have good relationship and sense of obligation to your country. So that can be a country sending literal bags of cash, which the CIA has done. We've done that. I'm sure other countries have done that too, or or sending goods, you know, sending, sending weapons, sending vehicles, sometimes sending weapons so that your side, you know, the side you've chosen to back can fight. And I think sometimes just sending them as sort of like here, like us. And it was largely that, that Amal was able to exploit, and so you know, there's an example, with up-armored vehicles, which you know are kind of expensive to ship, especially to a landlocked country, but some of the neighboring countries were were giving them as part of their patronage relationships with certain warlords and leaders, often way more than those warlords and leaders actually needed. So Amal found this way to to take those vehicles and then lease them for a massive, massive markup to Western security contractors. So you had this kind of crazy, odd situation where, you know, in some cases, weapons provided by Iran were being provided to Americans and British, you know, right at the time when President Bush was saying, you know, Iran is the axis of evil. And yet you have, you know, American military yeah. contractors driving around with, with you know, protected by armored vehicles provided by Iran. I thought that was very interesting when you wrote about that. I also thought it was very interesting
0: that I'm all when he's negotiating with these Westerners, he's like, oh, maybe I shouldn't ask for too high of a price, but I'm going to ask for it. And like he just drops like some ludicrous number, and the Westerners are like, okay. Yeah. You know, <laughs> we'll, yeah. we'll pay that. Like they don't even try and like negotiate with him. It, there's just yeah. so much cash. Like nobody's really paying that much attention.
1: And I was, was really disorienting to him. He'd be like, you know, because he's used to bartering and that's part of his yeah. skill. And he didn't get to because no yeah. one
0: <laughs> that was actually the first time i went to the middle east That was like that was a cultural thing that i had to learn also right. too is like you know that's kind of the expectation is to
1: uh yeah to harder things down i remember that i just felt uncomfortable doing that someone would be like this carpet how much is it worth how much do you want to pay and i'd be like i mean i don't make anything i don't want to insult you be like no no won't tell me what is it and i'd say like five dollars I'm like oh how could you say that Yeah,
0: yeah, Um, I yeah those those uh, those parts of uh, of the book, if not resonated at least I was like oh yeah that's that. Where where were you? Where were you? Well, I was a few places actually. The first time that I left the country, I was uh, I was 18 years old, and I went to the West Bank. Actually, Uh, yeah, I spent a summer living in Bethlehem and uh i was studying arabic in college at the time was at indiana university and i never left the country before but i think a little bit like what you were talking about when you were growing up you know you 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 kind of wanted to like get out and see the world and you know there's much more out there and and which really drove you to writing you know i too like you know i just i was just like dying to like go see the world and and go see things Uh and I got a travel grant from this company to, um, spend a summer in the West bank. And I was, you know, I got to practice my Arabic. I lived with a Palestinian family, which was very, uh, very cool because I got like, you know, every day was like a new, a new course on Middle Eastern culture. Uh, so that was really cool. And then I went, when I was in college for another summer, I went to Oman and then, when I graduated, I lived in Jordan and Qatar um, for a short period of time. So, yeah, so I've been to a few places. Yeah, definitely no war zones, but uh, I've got like a little a little knowledge of of Middle Eastern culture. But the bartering stuff is like totally like, and I'm still like not I'm not good at at doing uh-huh. that. No, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I never learned. Like, I, there's no way I would ever make it in the Middle East trying to like
1: wheel and deal. No, not not at all. You need someone like him.
0: Exactly. Yeah. No, like I, uh, and you know, I've met those people when I've been in the middle East Um, when I was in Jordan, there was this guy who real nice guy, a professor when I was in college, he, he introduced me to him to for him to help me find an apartment and for, you know, to do those things that nobody, you know, don't trust like this Westerner from, from Indiana. Like I grew up in like this rural, small rural (laughs) town. And so like this guy was like, he used to, he was Iraqi and he, he was like, he fought in Saddam's army. Like he was a big guy. And it's so funny because um, when I was reading your book, uh, I assume that on the cover here is, is I'm all on the left and you on the right. Is that, yep. well, for some reason that didn't register until like maybe 50 pages in. And I flipped back and I was like, oh, that must be the guy. But when <laughs> I was initially, when I was reading your story, I was picturing this guy, this Iraqi guy who was like helping me around Jordan as like kind of this fixer, because that's who he was. And yeah. like, he could negotiate. He, to find my apartment, he just like he like flags some guy walking down the road and he's like, Hey, do you live around here? And like, they got to talk and he's, and he's like, you know, any apartments? And he's like, Oh, I'll show you one now. And like, they, they negotiated the price and he was like talking to him. He's like, Oh my gosh. Like, how could you, you know, that's <laughs> yeah. an outrageous price. Like it, it must be much lower. And so anyway, like, yeah, like that kind of, that kind of culture, it's not something that comes natural to me, but I also like, have met people with that kind of personality and have been so grateful for them. Yeah, you just put your
1: faith and you just put, put yourself in their hands.
0: Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about your... So this we've been talking about this stretch of time now where you and I all are, I think it's like 2011, 2012, you're in different parts of the world. Uh, he's in Afghanistan. You've returned to the US. Talk a little bit about what you've going on and, and how your career is changing and progressing.
1: Yeah. So I, I ended up going to grad, graduate school um, for international security, international relations, and then and then finishing again, not really being able to get a job and decided to really to really kind of bear down and try to do a book. Uh, and long story short, I ended, up, I ended up writing this book about a um, co-educational school in Afghanistan that was, at that time already 2012, preparing for for what looked like an imminent uh, U.S. withdrawal. So, and and after that, I began working on some more long form magazine stories and started, you know, sort of traveling the world again. Well, let's fast forward a, a little bit
0: here then to. I guess 2021, which is like a 10-year jump, but you know we've only, we've only got so much time here. Talk about your career a little bit, how it's progressed, and then talk about the Taliban's takeover of Afghanistan, and, and how that impacted you.
1: So in, in many ways, thanks to this kind of base that Amal had helped me build, you know, I was able to do this book. Uh, when that first book was, you know, after I'd submitted a first draft and before it was published, I wrote to every magazine editor I could find and said, "Hey, I've got some time because I'm waiting for my book to come out because I wrote a book because my book's going to be published because I, you know, I just like <laughs> repeated the fact that I as as shamelessly as I could, and ended up getting some um, assignments in various parts of the world and had a few years of covering, you know, outbreaks and different, different civil conflicts and wars and insurgencies all, you know, all the while Afghanistan had been kind of, you know, my first love, I guess, but also I just become so close to so many people there. And as, so as the, the Biden administration announced they weren't going to change, they were going to pull, you know, they were going to pull troops entirely out by that August, 2021. Um, a lot of us who were, you know, who were friends, who were friends and family of, of the country kind of like, or of, or of communities there, um, started to get worried. I, I think I still had some kind of denial that, you know, well, it's not actually going to happen, but better start, better start building some pathways out just in case. Uh, the person I was most worried about was this, this guy who had founded this coeducational school and was a member of an ethnic and religious minority. so for a variety of reasons, he was really at risk. And also, I was just very close to him and his family. So there were a few months of just kind of writing and calling different American universities and think tanks and and um, and trying to find positions for him. And actually, a lot of really positive response. I was really kind of amazed people who were not trying to, I mean, this was before there was that moment where everyone was paying attention to Afghanistan. There was no like glory or glamor or or posturing in it. They're just people who learned a little bit about this person and kind of wanted to help. Ultimately, none of that worked because that his, not everyone in his family had passports. Not everyone had visas. The embassies were overrun already. Plus they were, they had been, they they were sort of already operating with skeleton crews And it just got more and more and more urgent until, you know, we came to August 2021 and this, and city after city was falling to the Taliban, Kabul fell and it came down to a few nights of just being up all night and sort of coordinating the family's route across Kabul using this incredible network of people who'd come together, just kind of impromptu and some, some pretty influential former and active duty military who were, who were trying to make sense of the chaos and get people, get people across. There was just this like very traumatic, but kind of heady effort to get this one family to safety. And once that happened, we had about five minutes of, wow, I can't believe he's finally safe. They're finally okay. And then it was like, geez, we've just deprived this whole community of its leader. Now what? And we just rolled right into trying to get more people, especially girls from that school out of the country. And that's an effort that just continues today.
0: And so at, at this point, you're, you're a pretty seasoned, uh, if you want to say seasoned, uh, but you've, you've, you've reported from other war zones. Um, I think there's a a chapter where you're reporting from Yemen. Mm-hmm. What, what, what are some of like the career milestones that, that you've passed up to this point?
1: The Yemen was a, was a big one. That was a really difficult story to pull off, but but uh, again, had a lot of help. And that was that one of the things I was trying to do with that, I guess, with a lot of the stories to try to take kind of exotic and foreign and difficult to understand, and then sometimes kind of too big to understand crises and try to render them in a, in a kind of intimate, personal, easy to grasp way. And I certainly don't always succeed, but that's often part of the motivation of, you know, trying to find an angle. in I'd had, I'd done a story in Northern Iraq about. ISIS siege on, a, on Kirkuk and couldn't quite figure out how to, how to like portray that in a way that Western readers might f- feel connected. And the solution ended up being this one story about a guy who had an old bulletproof BMW that he drove around and saved a bunch of people. So it was like, literally, there's a BMW, like people know what a BMW looks like. Maybe that's the almost literal vehicle I can use to, to sort of transport people to this other conflict. So there's a number of things trying to do that. I I co-written a couple of books that would would kind of help pay for my habit of trying to do these, you know, this this war reporting that still was freelance and even when I was getting compensated for it, it was usually after having to put in a lot of time and effort sort of and money trying to figure out the logistics. And then I think one of the meaningful differences between all of those and Afghanistan was that again, like I, and I didn't realize this at the time was that I could always come home. And when Afghanistan collapsed, and there was just this sort of incredible need from a lot of people that I either knew, or were members of a community that I knew, that was just all happening, like on my phone, you know, there was no, and I didn't, I didn't really realize this was the first time I couldn't leave, I wasn't there, I was already, you know, gone, but it was just constant and everywhere. There was kind of no escape. And I think that was the first time I actually, as much as I felt like I could, you know, empathize with people who are in in the midst of some kind of violent civil conflict, I think that was the first time I actually it really came home. And it's because I was home and there was no other place I could go to sort of escape from it.
0: Yeah. And you touch on this actually a little bit in the afterward of your book about war correspondence, just kind of in general. What is what do you think your book says about war correspondence and in, in war reporters? What do you think the takeaway is there?
1: I, I think that I mean one of the things, and I'm, and of course I'm trying, you know, partially because I want this to be more like a novel, even though I tried very hard to make sure it's all t- true and and cor- corroborated. You know, I'm trying not to be preachy, but if there is a one message to foreign policymakers and also to people who cover foreign policy and foreign correspondence and war correspondence. It's just, it's just the the benefit of humility and what happens when you lack it. And I, and I'm sort of trying to use my, you know, part one, myself as an example of, of the damage you can cause. If you, if you aren't, if you, if you aren't humble, you know, if you don't, if you don't acknowledge a little bit of what you don't know. And also, If you license yourself to just do anything under the kind of rubric of, I'm a journalist, and therefore, no matter what I do, you know, I'm fighting the good fight. You know, I, of course, think that journalism is indispensable, that foreign reporting is really important. But I also think that we tend to have, we being, I think, journalists, especially freelance journalists, well, all all journalists tend to have you know, a bit of a persecution complex, a bit of a, it's so hard for us and we're doing God's work. And therefore, whatever pain I might inflict on this person I'm interviewing is worth it because I'm informing, you know, the public. And it's not that I necessarily always strongly disagree with that, but I think that it's worth, it's worth pausing and asking the question. And I think that we don't often do that. I think we often say, here I am, stick the microphone in someone's face." You know, what was it like when your family was killed? And we don't rarely, we, we don't, we don't really often think, is this necessary? Is this actually helpful? Am I, you know, should I be caught re-traumatizing this person? So I think it's that sort of pause and question and a little bit of introspection that I, I would advise to my earlier self. And, you know, if I'm going to be so bold as to <laughs> advise other journalists, is, is it may be that wonderful well jeff this has been a
0: terrific interview i could just i could just keep going but i know we got to wrap up finally here you know what are you working on next
1: i'm working on so one of the big things i'm working on is a a book that was already late when i started this one but it's it's sort of a biography of one of the first smart bombs and trying to follow this one invention um from the from world war ii to now and telling a number of stories that kind of intersect with the development of this of this bomb that's been my I'm a couple of years late on that now but okay. it'll, <laughs> eventually
0: well uh i hope whenever you finish it i hope you come back on and well, i you know i'd love to i'd love to talk to you about it yeah I like that. well where uh if people want to follow you or if where can people find you are you, are you on social media
1: Yeah, I'm not that good at it, but I'm trying to sort of learn the. Join the club, yeah. (laughs) Maybe easiest thing is just the website, JeffreyEStern.com. If and you know, and I'll do a tweet once every six months. So, (laughs) okay,
0: perfect. Well, Jeff, thanks again, Uh, everybody. Jeffrey E Stern. The Mercenary. Go get a copy. Go check it out from your library. Read the story. Very compelling read. Read like a novel. I'll repeat that again because uh, that was Jeff's intention and that's what I thought it did. Yeah. So, Jeff, uh, thanks so much. AJ, thank you so much. This was so great. Thank you. Thanks.